When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy C. Jones, and welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Leaders on Leadership podcast, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk about what it really takes to pay the price of leadership. And I have an amazing guest today. Today, we have Bob Kolhep. And Bob is the retired chairman and CEO of Sintus Corporation. I know everyone listening has heard of this. And Bob spent 50 years with Sentus, and he was an important part of their growth story with sales growing from 1.6 million to about 8 billion today. Bob, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tracy, for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I love it. And wow, I mean, we get a lot of people on here that have very backgrounds. I myself have worked in quite a few things, but it's going to be fascinating to hear about a leadership perspective that has been really wholly focused on one particular industry and one particular company. I look forward to sharing it. Thanks, Bob. Okay, well, let's get started right away. My father wrote a speech called The Price of Leadership many, many years ago, and it is still one of the most downloaded and listened to speeches. And in it, he lays out the four things that leaders are going to have to be paying if they're really going to be leaders in reality and not just leaders in name only. And Bob, the first one he talks about is loneliness. And we've all heard the term, it's lonely at the top, heavy is the head that wears the crown. But Bob, could you unpack for us what loneliness meant for you throughout your career, maybe at different stages, and share maybe with our listeners how they should cope with loneliness if they're in that season? Well, it is lonely at the top. When you're the CEO of a company, everybody's looking to you. You have to make the final decision. The buck stops at your desk. And I would tell you that the most pressure I felt in my job was the fact that when I stepped down as CEO, we had a little less than 30,000 employees. And I would always realize that there were 30,000 families counting on me to make the right decision. That There's a lot of pressure in that because if you mess up at a company, people can lose their jobs. People can lose their investment in the company if they're shareholders. And so it is a tremendous responsibility. There's no question about it. And it is lonely at the top, but I think there's some key things you can do to deal with that loneliness. The first thing is have a good mentor. I was very fortunate that the founder of our company was my mentor and my boss for most of the 50 years I was there. Wow. He was a great person to consult with, to get advice from, to pick his brain, rely on the experience that he had because he had been there before. And I think one of the things leaders have to do is to look for people in their life that have been there before and then talk to them about what did they do under these circumstances and so forth. The other thing I think you can do to fill that gap is I was a member of YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. Okay. And when you have the ability to talk to other people who are in the same position that you're in and go to them and say, I have this problem. Have you ever dealt with this before? 
What did you do? How did it work? What would you have done differently? And so forth. And so if you can't join YPO because you don't qualify or you're not interested, you need to have some group of people that are confidants, that are people that you can go to for help and input. And again, I'd be looking for people who've been there before whenever possible. I think the third thing I would tell you is you need to develop confidants within your organization. I always found that there were people within the company who I had great deal of respect for. And when I was challenged with a problem, I would frequently call one or more of them in and say, hey, this thing has come up. Here's what I think we should do. What do you think? And those were usually just two or three people. I think if you have a good head of human resources, they can be a great resource because frequently when other people in the company have a problem, they might go to the head of human resources and talk to them about it and not necessarily come to you. So I think it's great the head of human resources that is a confidant of yours, that he has their ear to what's going on in the company, and that you could use as a sounding board and as a person that can give you good input. So I think if you do those three things, you can deal with that loneliness at the top. Well, I love you really hit on the three different areas. And again, Napoleon Hill, mastermind groups, everybody, a lone sheep is a dead sheep. I love that you talk about within the organization, kind of lateral, outside the organization, your YPO, because you still need people from outside because sometimes you just get so insulated. But I love that the founder was your mentor. Is he the one that recruited you to the company? Yes. And how big was the company then? Did you have any idea where it was going or how big was it then when you first started? It was 1.6 billion in sales. Okay. And how many six, people were there? 62. And you just found him or he found you? Was it were you in the local proximity? Because this fascinates me how people come together at the beginning of their career. Well, what happened was that he reached a conclusion based on advice he got from an outsider that he needed to stop hiring people from within the industry to come to work for him and hire young college graduates who could grow with the company. Because when they hire people within the industry, frequently they were not college graduates. They would do a good job for two or three years, and then all of a sudden the job would double in size, and they couldn't handle it anymore. Mm. So he went to a friend, and his friend said to him, you need to do, if you look at the great companies in the, in the country, I mean, Procter & Gamble is right in Cincinnati, you know, oh, okay. IBM, Google, whatever company you want to talk to, most of them hire people right off of college campuses. And they sort of grow their own, so to speak. So he set about contacting his insurance broker, his banker, his lawyer, his CPA, and say, be on the lookout for a young person who you think he has some potential. Well, coincidentally, the lawyer for Cintas was one of the people he contacted. And he and I, I was practicing CPA. And the lawyer and I had some mutual clients. And I said some things at several meetings that the lawyer was very impressed with. And he called up Dick Farmer, who was our founder, and said, I met this young guy and you should talk to him. And first thing Dick said, well, how old is he? And he said, he's only 23. And Dick said, gee, I'd like to have somebody that's a little further along in their career than 23. What Dick didn't realize is I went to a unique high school in my area, graduated from college when I was 19, had four years of experience at age 23. He didn't know that when he heard 23. Okay. So Don Kleekamp, the lawyer, called him a second time. And when he called me, he said, Bob, I have an open position at the company. I happen to be a controller. And he said, I've heard some things about you and I'd like to meet you and talk to you about maybe coming to work for me. And I said, Dick, I'm very happy where I am. I have no interest. Thank you very much. And I hung up. Well, I came to know Dick Farmer was a very persistent man. He kept calling me back and calling me back. And finally, he said to me, hey, what harm can it possibly be 
if we just spent an hour or two together and talked. Well, once I met him, we hit it off like a hand in a glove. And I could see that he had a vision for where he wanted to take the company. And he said, I could help him achieve that vision. And if I did, I could be very successful as he was. And that's sort of how it all started back in 1967. And did you come in with your accounting or your financial background? Did you start in that role at Comptroller or or did you bounce all over CFO before you went to CEO? I started as controller. Okay. Then we were growing and Dick decided to go to Cleveland to build the company. And believe it or not, at the ripe old age of 24, he made me the general manager of the company he built and said, here, you run it. And that was a great, a great experience. But we were on the phone constantly. What do I do about this? This guy just quit. What do I do about that? So we were constant communication. So I went from that, the general manager, then I went back to become chief financial officer. Then I became executive vice president. Then I became president, chief operating officer, then CEO, then vice chairman, and ultimately chairman. I love it. Well, outstanding input on how to combat loneliness, anticipate it, and be intentional about people because there are only certain things that you can talk out with certain groups of people and to have them on speed dial for whatever happens. So thank you so much for that, Bob. The next topic my dad talked about was weariness. And to stay and grow, we're mere mortals, although sometimes we like to think we're more than that, but it's tiring. How do you stay at the top of your game? Because you have to be in fit fighting form to lead the troops. So how do you really deal with weariness? Or can you share with us a time where it really almost got the best of you? More than once. I think the way you do that is with humility. You do that by having humility, recognizing that you're not always going to be right recognizing that the people in your company doing the work know more about what's going on than you do, recognizing that just because you have a college degree or you have this title, executive, manager, supervisor, whatever it might be behind your name, there are other people in the company who have more experience than you do. So you have to follow the advice my father gave me, and that is you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And so you have to listen a lot and you have to listen to your people. And I used to tell my people all the time, uh, The answer is never in your office. When you have a problem, go talk to your employees, go talk to your customers. The employees always know what's wrong. Usually they even know how to fix it. But so many people think that because I've got this vice president position, I'm supposed to know. Rely on your people. They're standing next to the problem all day, every day. They see it. They understand it. They wonder why somebody hasn't asked them, what do we need to do to fix this? And so I think humility is a very important asset. I think your health is an important part of dealing with that kind of situation. I always try to watch what I eat. I exercise regularly. It took the edge off. And frankly, almost every night when I went home, first thing I do is put my gym clothes on, go down my basement and run on the treadmill. It took the edge off. I found that I go home, I'd be tired, but I really wasn't tired. I was more stressed. Mm. And that exercise took the edge off, so to speak. And so I think you need to do that as well. There was a time when We started up a distribution center that I was in charge charge of. It was very automated, and we had the old distribution center that was very manual, and we thought we had worked out all the bugs in this new automated system, and we shut down the old distribution center, brought everything to the new distribution center, and all of a sudden, boxes that were supposed to go down this conveyor went down that conveyor. It was an absolute nightmare. And I really thought to myself, maybe the Peter principle just got me because this thing is really messed up. I mean, we were missing shipments and so forth. And what I did was I went to my people and I, we worked out a plan. Everybody knew what they needed to do and so forth. I will tell you, if uh, there had been a rope in my office after everybody left, I might have strung myself up because I was yeah. so 
down on, but I never let my people know that. I always told my, but we'll get this fixed. It's going to be okay. We'll survive this. This is just another problem. I've been asked many times on these podcasts, what is the most important ingredient or most important trait that successful people have? And without hesitation, I say dogged determination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're going to get knocked down. The road to success is always under construction. The people who do it over the long term are the people after they get knocked down, learn from their mistakes, dust themselves off and get right back into the game. And that dogged determination, in my opinion, I don't care whether you're in business, whether you're in academia, whether you're in the medical profession, whatever it is, that dogged determination is an asset that every successful person has. Never, never give up. Always get back in the race. Learn from your mistakes. And I used to always say, I have no trouble with anybody that makes mistakes. The only people I know don't make mistakes are people don't do anything. Right. The people you worry about are the people that make the same mistake over and over again. Right. Those you have to deal with. And I think that's true of as you're a boss, I would give people leeway to make mistakes. It's okay. You got to try things. I think the level of innovation in any company is directly related to the number of tries. So you got to let your people try things, even if they're things you don't necessarily agree with. Now, you can't jeopardize the whole company with those decisions. They got to be smaller decisions. But somebody once told me that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb on a 676 try. If we'd have cut him off at 600, we'd all be sitting around with flames and candles. You know, So I think that's the mindset I think you have to have when you're the boss. I love it. And I love that you brought up the humility aspect and weariness, because a lot of times we carry the burden and we're not meant to do it alone. And doing it alone is like you said, your team is there to help. And otherwise you have the wrong team, but somehow we think, well, I have to have all the answers. And it's like, no, you just have to be able to find all the answers. And that comes from the people. I love that. All right. So loneliness, weariness. The next thing my father talked about was abandonment and abandonment typically gets a negative connotation, fear of abandonment. I work in pet rescue. So abandonment is a big no, no, but his sense of abandonment was that we need to abandon what we like and want to think about in favor of what we ought and need to think about and be doing. So it almost is a pruning of the non-value added things. In other words, like a real hyper-focus. So I'm sure, Bob, as you were growing the company, you had a million people come up with a million different things every day. Well, they were good. As we know, good is the enemy of great. So how do you stay really on point and avoid mission drift and as we call it in the military, scope creep? Well, I think... Any leader has to understand you have limited resources, limited resources of people, limited resources of capital, limited resources in other ways. And so you have to direct those limited resources to the areas that are going to make a difference. Mm. I would say the first thing you have to do is to have a vision. Where are you trying to take the organization? We had a very clear vision in our company as to what we were trying to do and the way we wanted to do it. And so I think you need to go back to that vision. And we also had a principal objective in the company. Our principal objective was to exceed our customers' expectations in order to maximize the long-term value for our employees, who we call partners, and our shareholders. And every decision we made, we would go back to, does this tie into our vision? Does it tie into our principal objective? And if it didn't, we shouldn't be doing it. And so that's one way, I think, in a macro way, you need to do it. The other thing I used to always do is I'd always have my yellow pad back before we had iPhones and things like that, my list of things to do. But in the back of my legal pad, I had two things, my job description and my goals. And on the first of every month, I would get my job description out. I would get my goals out. And I would say to myself, 
Now, do I spend the last 30 days focusing on these things or were there a whole bunch of other things? Wow. Frequently, the A priorities are much more complex and much more difficult to solve. Right. So we have a tendency to do a lot of B's and C's and have the feeling we got a lot of things done and the A's are just sitting there gathering dust. And that little system that I had kept me to be focused on the A priorities. Outstanding. I love that. And that is, so have you ever heard of the Ivy Lee method? I think you work no. for Schwab and he'd say the day before list it, rack and stack your top six priorities. And that really keeps you focused and on point. But I love that because we think we're doing stuff and we're getting stuff done, but the A priorities are what we have to, are what the biggest levers that are going to move the business forward. So Absolutely. that is wonderful advice for our listeners. Okay. Lastly, vision. And I think a lot of people, when they think of leadership and vision, you almost think you have to be touched by an angel, you know, and it's very esoteric and very like Nostradamus. But my dad would always say, Tracy, vision is just seeing the future and then executing it. So how did you see the vision of Sintas? You watched a long-term vision, not only stay on point, but actually go into the creative sphere. Tell us about that, what vision meant for you and how you guys would tweak it modify it, breathe some new life in it. How did you do that? Well, we did it very uh, deliberately. It was up to the CEO, I think, and for many years, Dick Farmer. And I became CEO in, in uh, let's see, what was it, 1995. And it was my job to paint the vision, so to speak. And you need to look at what's happening in your industry. Where do you fit in your industry? What could disrupt your industry or your business? And to be able to look forward five, six, seven years and see where it's all going. And the simple description of a vision is it's like the picture of a jigsaw puzzle. When you're working on a jigsaw puzzle, most people have a box and it's got a picture on the front of it. And they're constantly going from putting the pieces in place back to the picture and back and forth. Okay. Without a picture, which is the vision. Without that, people don't know what they're doing and how it fits in to the overall organization. Dick Farmer used to tell a story about three guys digging a ditch. And uh, the guy walks by and he says to the first guy, what are you doing here? And the guy said, I'm digging a ditch. What's it look like up there? He asked the second guy, what are you doing here? He said, I'm digging a ditch. This is where we're going to put the plumbing for this building we're building. He asked the third guy and he says, we're digging a ditch and this is going to be a magnificent cathedral. It's going to have four spars. It's going to have 25 stained glass windows. It's going to be this. It's going to be that. The third guy had the vision. The CEO's job is to paint the vision, but equally, if not more important, communicate the vision ad nauseum so that everybody gets how their job fits into the overall picture. And in fact, I teach a course on leadership and the very first trait that I've found nine key traits of leaders is vision. You need to know where you're trying to take the company. Then you need to know how to communicate that to the people who work in the company. So that what they do each and every day, week and month ties into that overall plan. And you have to spot things when people get off track with the vision and make sure that they get back on track. Doesn't mean they're not doing a good thing, just not doing something that fits in to the overall plan. That happens frequently in a company that where the CEO doesn't paint the vision, right. and doesn't communicate the vision ad nauseum. 
Right. And I think you really hit on something important too. You really want to have it clearly delineated or bounded because all things are exciting and we could try a million different things. I would tell people park in that parking lot. Let's stay really on point. Even in publishing a book, that's a great subtopic. That can be your next book, but let's just stay really focused on this. And I love that everything you talk about really goes back to that puzzle. You don't say, here's a puzzle. And then, oh, here's another picture. And here's another picture. And here's another picture. Just get it there. Right, right. Excellent. Now, the vision has to change over time because right. sometimes you three quarters approve the vision and now you got to be looking out another five or six or seven years. So we would tweak it from time to time. We would constantly review it annually to be sure it all made sense and fit what the situation was. But I think the communication of the vision is, if not more important, as important as creating the vision. Excellent. All right, Bob. Well, thank you so much. You've taken us through loneliness, weariness, abandonment, and vision. And since we've got somebody with your pedigree and your decades of experience, I just want to open it up now. What other things about leadership that are near and dear to your heart, or you're like the sage on a stage now, you can kind of reflect back and pontificate maybe some things you saw or or what's on your heart to share with the contemporary leaders for today? Well, I'd say a couple of things. Number one is the importance of culture. Every organization has a culture. If you think about the family you grew up in, the high school you went to, the college you went to, there were certain values that were there. There were certain things in your family that your mom and dad felt very strongly about, and they made up your family's culture. Every organization, every company, every nonprofit, every institute of higher education is a culture. The job of the CEO is to articulate what is that culture? What do you want people to do? How do you want them to conduct themselves? How do you feel about your employees? How do you feel about your customers? What's the work ethic in your company? All those things need to be defined. And if you establish a culture, then you naturally attract people Mm. that are compatible with that culture. And in fact, we would even interview people in two steps. Step one was, are they qualified to do the job? Step two was, will they be compatible with our culture? And we spent just as much time on step two as we did on step one. Because if you hire somebody who wants to work 30 hours a week, and you have a company where you typically work 55 hours a week, it's not going to work. You need to find out about that before you hire, not after you hire. Right. And so I think the importance of culture, and we used to call our culture the ultimate competitive advantage, because I believe that if you can t- get the majority of people, you always strive for all the people, but the majority of people in an organization, it's sort of like a big boat and everybody has an oar. And in so many organizations, You see half the people rowing one way, half the people rowing the other way, and the boat goes nowhere. But if you can get just the majority of people in your organization rowing in the same direction, meaning having a set of values that they buy into, they believe in, and they live every day, it becomes an awesome force. And that's something we spent a lot of time talking about. We've written books about it. We taught courses on it. Every new manager that came in the company had to go to the course. And if you read uh, Jim Collins' book, Not Good the Great, but the first one, uh, Built the Last, he talked about all the companies he studied. He looked at the leader in that industry, and he said every one of them had a cult-like culture. I don't mean that in a bad way, right. but, but everybody drank the Kool-Aid, so mm-hmm. to speak. And that is so important because it's an intangible. Your competitors can't copy it. You can't see it, but it's real. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about your book that you came out with? The Build a Better Organization. Yeah, well, my book is broken down into three parts. 
just talked about the first part. It's about culture. It's about our principal objective, our corporate character, and our management system and business ethics. The second part of my book is about people. And let me just pause on that part of it because we haven't talked about that. I once attended the women's final four many years ago when the legendary coach Pat Summit coached Tennessee. And my wife and I were the hosts for a university in Cincinnati that I was very involved with because the final four was going to be in Cincinnati and Xavier University was the host. Iowa City, where the regionals are, and the University of Connecticut was number one, undefeated, and somehow Tennessee upset them in the regionals, came to Cincinnati and won the final four. I was in the press conference where Pat Summit was being interviewed by the reporters after she won. And one reporter said to her, Coach Summit, would you share with the other women's coaches, how you've been able to win four national championships in the last nine years. And without hesitation, she said, recruiting. I have never, ever forgot that night because I have preached that to our people, recruiting, hiring the right people. You can be the greatest coach in the whole world, but if you don't have good players, you are not going to win many games. So we developed a system we called meticulous hiring. And to get a job at CentOS, I don't care if you were the janitor, you had to go through six or eight interviews. We would check your references religiously. We'd know more about you than you knew about yourself before we hired you because we understood that when we lost people, we would go back and do studies and realize in probably 60% of the cases, we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. And so the hiring process is a very arduous, time-consuming process. And we have a human tendency to compromise in that process Mm -hmm. because you're busy, you're interviewing people at night on Saturdays, and you want to get it over with and get back to doing your job. So what do you do? You compromise. And you should never, ever, ever compromise in a hiring decision. You need a very uh, arduous process on how you go about recruiting. And as I said earlier, we would not only determine, is this person capable of doing the job? Do they have the qualifications? but we would spend just as much time, if not more on, are they gonna be compatible with our organization? So we would ask a lot of situational questions Mm -hmm. because it was built on the premise that past behavior predicts future behavior. Mm -hmm. So we'd ask questions like, what's the toughest decision you ever made? Tell me about it. How'd it turn out? Would you do it differently today? Who's the best boss you ever had? Why? Who's the worst boss you ever had? Why? How did you deal with that bad boss? Okay, and a number of questions like that. And it was always about, here's a situation. How did you handle that situation? Uh Because most people will handle the next situation like they handled the last situation. And so we had a very, very distinct process. And you'd go through eight interviews if those eight people would get together and compare notes. And if any one of them said we shouldn't hire them, we didn't hire them. Okay. We'd go back to ground zero. Right. Because the rule was when you hire somebody you're really excited about, you're still going to be wrong 20, 30% of the time. But when you hire somebody you're warm about, you will be wrong every single time. Don't ever forget that. I know. I'm so glad you said that. And again, for the leaders out there, we're not God. We can't see in somebody's heart. But I'm from the military, a big due diligence person. And I really appreciate, you know, we can only know as much as we can know, but the more upfront and then, but if you don't, and it goes exponentially higher that this yeah. is, and I tell people, if you want it bad, that's how you're going to get it. So don't do it. Well, the other thing, too, that's part of our process is checking references. Yes. Always require the hiring manager to check references. Another question I would ask in the interview is, in your last two performance reviews, I would take the job, they just are in the job now. I said, in your last performance review, what areas of improvement did your boss 
ask you to work on. And I would ask them the same question about the previous job if it was within the last five or six or seven years. Uh-huh. And then I'd call the boss and I'd ask him the same question. You'd be surprised at how often <laughs> the answer is different. No, I wouldn't be surprised. That's brilliant. And do you let them give references or you always go back to previous employers and call them as a reference? No. Well, I would say to you, if you were interviewing with me, I'd say, who was your boss in your previous job? Is she still there? What position is she in? What city is she in? And so forth. And I would find out you never call the human resource department because the human resource department will confirm dates of employment and salary if you have a number and they won't tell you anything else because right. that's what the lawyers tell them not to Right. Do. Name, rank, and serial number. That's it. <laughs> exactly. I would talk to the person they work for and I wouldn't take no for an answer. If I'd call that place and they'd say, well, Mr. So-and-so retired two or three years ago. And I said, well, I have a very important matter I need to talk to him. But can you tell me how to get a hold of him? They'd give me his whole number. I'd call him at home. Bob, that is so smart. For our leaders out there, that's just so important to get the rest of the story and to get really a well-rounded concept. And you know what? That's why I tell people, don't burn bridges because then it's like you never even were there, but yet you're going to have to say you were there. So it's really important. Your professional past is always going to be there. Well, the other thing I would add to that is if you think you can know somebody in two hours interview better than somebody who worked for this person for five years, yes. you're kidding yourself. Yes. <laughs> Frequently, they won't. They don't open up with those kinds of things because if you're talking to a high-level manager, they're aware of the potential exposure they have. They say something they shouldn't say. Well, absolutely. I remember, I remember I was hiring an engineer one time and he worked for Procter & Gamble. And he was leaving Procter & Gamble. I called his previous boss and I said, tell me, why didn't this guy move into management? And he said, well, Bob, he said, we hire hundreds and hundreds of engineers every year. He said about 20% of them go into management, 70% of them remain engineers, and 10% of them leave. And I said, well, where was he? He says he was in the 70%. And I said, well, why wasn't he in the 20%? And I got gibberish. I didn't get a straight answer. Finally, the guy was getting upset with me because I kept probing and probing. He says, well, let me put it this way. If I had to row across the English Channel and I was allowed to put five other guys in the boat with me, he wouldn't be one of them. Okay. And I said, I got it. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> I love it. Well, that is certainly sage advice. So Bob, what are you doing now? Tell people how they can get in touch with you. And if our listeners, I'm sure are thinking, boy, I would love to talk to Bob, either to have him speak, get his book, maybe as a mentor. Can you share with our listeners how to get in touch with him, what you're doing now? Well, what I'm doing now is uh, in the jobs that I've had over the years, I've worked very, very hard. And because of that, at times, I missed some family things that I wished I could have attended. If it was important, I was there. But I missed a lot of soccer games and a lot of plays and a lot of musical recitals and all that kind of thing. And so I'm 78 years old now, and I've devoted the time that I have, not 100% of my time, but a lot of my time to imparting the knowledge and wisdom that I've been able to accumulate over the years to my children, mm. experience in a lot of different areas. And so I'm very close to my children. We talk a lot. So I think I need to pass on to them because one of the things that I believe very strongly in is it's much harder to pass down your values than it is to pass down your wealth. And so I'm focusing more on passing down my values than I am on passing down my wealth. Man. And so that's one thing I'm doing. And I'd say I don't work 80 hours a week like I used to, so I have time for golf and a few other things. I have a website called robertcolehep.com where you can listen to all my podcasts and a number of articles that I've written. And you can order my book there or you can order it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And so that's been a fun thing to do. 
I will tell you, I'm not sure I'll write a second one because there's a lot more work than I thought it was. But I was so pleased to be able to capture the knowledge and experience I had in a book because mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't want to leave this earth with all that being in my head. Absolutely. So that's where I spend my time today. All right. And for our listeners, again, we'll have this in the show notes so you can reach out to Bob and get his book. And for you leaders out there running organizations, I mean, just a tremendous wisdom. Bob, thank you so much. I learned so much. And it's just wonderful to sit and listen to the wisdom of a real seasoned leader like yourself. Thank you for sharing your insights and time. Tracy, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And for our tremendous leaders out there, thank you so much for being part of our tremendous tribe. If you like this podcast, be sure and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any of our future episodes. Also, we'd love the honor of a five-star review. Hit the like, share, drop us a line, drop us a comment, reach out to Bob, read a tremendous book, and keep on paying the tremendous price of leadership. Be sure and check us out on TremendousLeadership.com. And thanks so much for being a part of our tremendous tribe. Have a tremendous rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.